This is a, a message that is, I think, uh, been worked in my heart, Lord willing, uh, by the Holy Spirit, led in my heart uh, by our membership morning. Um, and the message is called, uh, And the Gates of Hell Will Not Prevail Against It. Which comes from Matthew 16, our first text this morning, And the Gates of Hell Will Not Prevail Against It. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Lord, I, uh, I appeal to you like the tax collector. Uh, in your word, you said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, that's uh, my appeal to you this morning is for your mercy in in your compassion and love towards sinners. And I pray God for you to um, forgive my hidden faults and keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Who can discern his error? Lord, please work through your word and bless your people, be faithful. I rely on you and your faithfulness as the husband, redeemer of this church and as the chief shepherd of this church as I seek to uh, be used by you to shepherd your people with your word. Help me. Honor your word. Protect your people from your word being dishonored. Where your word is honored and implanted, would you root it deeply and make it grow in all those ways in our hearts and our lives where you want it to grow. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, we looked at this text in the context of the importance of a local church. Uh, we particularly drew from it what comes after the text, which is this picture of the loosing and binding, and we see later in Matthew 18, the forgiving or withholding of forgiveness for sins based upon one's relationship and, and fellowship with Jesus Christ, and the fact that God gives local churches together, not just pastors, but entire local churches together, in each local church, the authority to, to pronounce someone forgiven and to pronounce someone um, potentially in through the process of excommunication in great spiritual danger and to be treated as someone outside the community of God. And 
that's one of the most important reasons to join a local church is that God commands us all faithfully to be part of that process in Matthew 18. And you can't obey Matthew 18 without being part of a local church. It is just basic obedience, but it involves an identification with a local community. And so for our new members today, you are doing something very important and very basic in terms of your obedience to the Lord, which is identifying with the local church and saying, I want to be accountable here and I will hold my brothers and sisters accountable to walk with Christ here. But I wanted to talk more about this morning, what happens before that, this dynamic between Jesus and Peter, where Peter sees something And when Jesus sees what Peter sees, he says, it's here on this, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, having seen what's going on in Peter's heart, having said, it's it's on what's happening to you that I'm going to build my church and what will happen to countless others throughout history, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to talk about that dynamic. And I just really have two points. Um, They're not super complicated, but I hope uh, I don't make them too cumbersome. (laughs) So the first point is this. The church is built on the revelation of Jesus Christ as the son of God. God's church is built fundamentally, foundationally, exclusively built on the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The church has no other foundation. So, in thinking about this point, I I felt like I wanted to unpack it this way. Why are you here at this church? Why are we here together at this church this morning? Maybe I should say, why should we be here together this morning? Why does God want you here? We see the answer in Peter's heart. It's a very simple answer, but it is the only reason for a church to exist. And it's the indispensable, crucial reason why anyone should and must belong to a local church. We're called to be here because God has said to us, Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. That's why we're here. You should be here, rather, I should say that. You should be here because God has said to your heart, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I mean, maybe you're not convinced of this yet. Maybe you're on a journey to discover this. Maybe you were once convinced, but now you're doubting, like many believers do, go through difficult seasons of doubt. Or maybe you know even now, though, That as you sit here, that's not really why you're here. Some of us might be here or have been in churches before because our parents want us to be here. They want us to be in a church. And when you're a child, that can be great and okay and necessary. But when you're no longer a child, family custom and tradition and culture, they won't keep you. And by themselves, they shouldn't keep you. And in our world, they likely won't keep you for very long. And you should know, God does not want family tradition and culture to keep you in a church. No, God wants you here, part of this church, part of any church, because of this. The revelation in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
His desire is that you would be part of this or any church because your eyes have been opened to the truth about Jesus. Everything's built on that. Everything else comes after that. He calls you into fellowship with other people. He calls you to love and serve in these groups of identifiable community because you saw that. Because you saw that. Not because your parents come to a church, not because there's a guy you like or a girl you like that is there, not even because your dearest friends are there, not because of good facilities or great sounding worship or even powerful feelings you have when you hear the music or you hear the preaching. Not saying any of those things are necessarily bad at all. Some of them are good gifts, but it's not your sense of social morality of churches that line up with your more conservative values that should keep you at a church. It shouldn't be because you're excited about the clothing ministry that will reach the community and your concern for the poor that should fundamentally keep you in a church. God wants your conviction to belong to and give yourself to a church community rooted more than anything else in your seeing something. And seeing something more important than anything in all of reality. He wants you committed to a church because you see with your spiritual eyes and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he is the one that God promised for centuries and millennia that God would send to rescue this God-rejecting, condemned world. And because you've seen that Jesus Christ is the son of God, you've come to believe that he is your only hope for salvation from God's condemnation for your sins and your only hope for eternal life. A gift that he gives freely to all who come to him for it. If you're part of this church, if you've joined this church this morning or you're going to be a part of this church or any church in the future, this is the reason above every other reason to be the church and to be part of it. You've come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the foundation and the only foundation of the church. And when Peter sees that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, this is it. This is the safe place. This is the right place. This is the true place to build my people, to build them on this. Not on amazing preaching, not on amazing worship, not on awesome programs of children's ministry, not on great websites, not on, and all those things can be used by God. And even more clearly, things like outreach can be used by God and are used by God. But because you see Jesus as God's son, you see him as your savior, and you see him as your Lord, then he says, love one another, forbear with one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another. All the things we prayed in our church prayer this morning, he says, do those with one another, You do that out of obedience, out of faith, out of reverence, out of hope in him, first and foremost. Because you've seen that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God.
And if you're here, and I believe most all of you do, if you're here and you've seen that, if you've seen that and believe that, if God has revealed that to you, I want to say to you this morning, as Psalm 2.11 says, rejoice with trembling. If you see that Jesus Christ, and you're able to confess in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, Rejoice with trembling because there is no one outside of the Godhead in this universe more privileged than you. If God has opened your eyes to see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, there is no one in this universe outside of the Godhead more privileged than you. Nothing greater can happen to anyone in the universe There's no greater gift that can be given to anyone in the universe than to see because of God opening their eyes that he is who he says he is. You may have many heartbreaks in your life. I know some of them are awful. There are people in this room who've lived a much harder life than I have. And I've had the privilege of watching God sustain you through awful, horrible things. I would never want to go through But if you could see clearly this morning, and none of us see perfectly, but if you could see clearly this revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, if you could see that clearly and see the privilege that it is to see that and what it means for your future to see that, it would make all of those heartbreaks light and momentary affliction to you. And I don't mean to treat them lightly, but we just don't see like we will see and like we're meant to see. But if we could, if we could see as we're meant to see all the blessings that God's given you, many of us have tremendous blessings, a family and good jobs and watching our kids grow up and see Christ and walk with Christ and If you understood the privilege it is to see that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, it would make all those blessings a loss in comparison to the incomparable privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. So if God has given you eyes to see Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, I want to appeal to you a simple application. Rejoice with trembling because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, brothers and sisters. Oh, you you might have heard it from your parents or from a tract or from a friend in college, from a radio or television show. He brings it in, in many different ways, but flesh and blood does not reveal it to you. Might speak it to you, but flesh and blood does not reveal to you that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, but only his father who's in heaven. Only God can open the eyes of anyone to believe this message. That's how privileged you are. God has opened your eyes himself personally. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this to you and I. If the gospel is veiled, if the gospel is hidden, he says, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing. It's a horrible situation that is the reality for millions and millions of people. The gospel is hidden from them. They are perishing. They are going into eternal death forever. They do not have eternal life. They do not have hope. They will be punished for their sins and eternally separated from God. And Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is the predicament of so many in our world. So many of our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and coworkers, neighbors, sons and daughters, right now, in God's sovereignty, he has allowed Satan to keep them blinded from the gospel. But then Paul says, I, I keep going. I keep proclaiming. I'm going to keep proclaiming. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said... Now he's going to talk about what he's done in you that he did for Peter that day. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who did that? Who took away the blindness? Who opened the eyes of those who cannot see? Did you? Did I? No. God commanded into your heart. And he said, he has shown into your heart, Paul says, and into your heart he said, just like he said on that first day, he said, let there be light. Where there was only darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What an unspeakable privilege for God himself to work light into your heart that you might see that his son is who he says and to call you to his son. This is why we're a church. This is what a church is. It's, it's made up of these people who see this and hold to this and seek to help each other keep seeing this and keep holding to this. we can look at a church by how many people are in it. I mean, that, that's almost always like, feels like, not always, but it very much often can feel like the under, undertow of conversations about churches between pastors. Like, how's your church doing? You almost feel like the next sentence is like, oh, are people there? Are people not there? And I'm not poo-pooing that absolutely. You know, Acts tells us 3,000 were added to our, to 3,000 were added that day. Like, it's a good thing when, when because of God's work, more are added to a church. But it's not the most important thing. 
some people look at a church and they say, how amazing are the spiritual gifts in that church? The healings that are going on, the prophetic words that are going on. Some people look at the, the trellis aspect of the church, the way this church is not ours, but the way churches can be so well led, organized, and managed. So we can look at miracles of healings and big crowds and good leadership and say, gosh, that's amazing. And God can do wonderful things through those things. But might we be awed and moved and swayed at a church for those things? And all the while, we're missing the greatest miracle possible in all of creation. That sitting among you are men and women and boys and girls who were once spiritually dead, spiritually dead and blind to God. And then God moved on them by the Holy Spirit and suddenly he said to all these people in this room, let there be light. And then you were able to see the light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. And this seeing then changed everything about how you view yourself and how you, you view the creator of the universe. Sin was once a comfort to you. And now it brings you grief. And you can't wait to be done with it. And you hate it. It was once your friend, and now it's your enemy. This sick old man who won't let go. But you used to not care about that. Now you just can't wait till the clouds crack open and you see him face to face and you're done with it all. That's what you're waiting for. God was once, at best, a nice idea. you hoped might be real and made sense of there being meaning in the universe. Or a moralistic ideal that you, you, you really appreciated, but you couldn't reach. And deep down, you knew he, he was something controlling in your heart that just wanted to hide from him. Politely detest him or maybe arrogantly mock him. That's where you were. But now he's become your treasure. Now he's become your hope. Now he's become your Lord that you don't serve as well as you want, you, you want to, but you do seek to serve. Now he's become someone that you want your whole life to be oriented around. This is how Paul treated the church. This is how he saw these churches he served that were in so much trouble. I mean, if you look at the Bible, you know, there used to be um, this saying, I mean, I think Robin was here a couple weeks ago. He talked about it when covenant life first started. They, they walked around thinking, we're going to be the new, we're going to recapture the New Testament church again. And if you know your Bible, it's pretty easy just to say to that, which one? Galatians, where they were perverting the gospel? Corinthians, where they were getting drunk at communion and sleeping with their stepmoms. Acts, where some of them were being killed by God because they were lying and thieving, being hypocrites. Ephesians, where Jesus says he's about to spit them out of his mouth because they're so lukewarm. If that's Ephesus, I might be getting it wrong. <laughs> Which New Testament church do you want to be, right?
But what did Paul do with these churches? He, he said, I, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and you're not who you were. You're struggling, I've got to rebuke you. But you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm filled with a divine jealousy for, for you. Jesus is divinely jealous for you. He's passionately jealous for you because you're his bride now. That's how he looked at the churches. He said, I, I used to regard you according to the flesh, but no longer. Now you're a new creation. That's what he said to the people who were vilifying him and slandering him. In 2 Corinthians, he said, you are a new creation. I'm not going to consider you according to human standards, but according to who God has made you through this revelation. This revelation of Jesus Christ has completely changed who you are and your identity. That's what's happened to you. And no one can teach you this. No one, can, no one can teach you the revelation of Jesus so that you see it. No one can preach the revelation of Jesus so that you believe it. No one can evangelize the revelation of Jesus so that someone embraces it. We're commanded to do these things. We do these things. But Paul says, the Lord says to us, he must, God must act. I planted the seed, says Paul. Apollo watered the seed, but God made it grow. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God makes it grow. Flesh and blood did not teach Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. But the father himself, if you sit here this morning and you know in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, you have experienced the greatest miracle possible and you have received the greatest privilege anyone can have. And this room is filled with those people. So rejoice with trembling. Laugh with reverence at the divine, almost divine comedy that God would choose you and open up your eyes and give you this gift that he's acted on you. Be awed and be amazed that you would get to have your eyes open to this revelation. And that God would not only reveal this to you, but then he would seek to do something with your life and build it into others and build a church around it. And in some measure, he would build it on the rock of your faith, build real ministry on your confession of Jesus Christ for others that your life would have meaning in community with his people. That you would be called into serving his kingdom as a member of his church. Which brings us to the second point. That this supernatural revelation of Christ, which founds the church, it, this revelation makes the church itself supernatural. This revelation of Jesus Christ upon which Jesus builds the church makes the church itself supernatural and invincible. It's not because of the church. It's because of the power of God working through the revelation of Jesus Christ that the church becomes invincible. Just as this revelation 
gave Peter indestructible life from the dead. So it gives his people corporately together indestructible life. Life that the gates of hell itself, Hades, death, cannot conquer. The church looks often weak, disordered, harassed, confused, because it is often weak, disordered, confused, and harassed. The church is persecuted in the world and in conflict internally. That's largely the story from an earthly point of view of the church for 2,000 years. Persecuted in the world and in conflict internally. For 2,000 years, attacks on the church have come relatively relentlessly from the outside. I mean on the true church, where you have the Christian government of England putting people to death, putting real Christians to death for having Bibles, putting people in prison, real Christians, in the name of Jesus, putting John Bunyan in prison for preaching the real gospel. The real church will always be persecuted and the real church will always have internal conflict. For 2,000 years, the church has been martyred, tortured, imprisoned, harassed. You can turn to Voice of the Martyrs or the International Christian Concern websites, either persecution.org or persecution.com, and you can see daily updates on the imprisonments and murders and tortures around the globe. And persecution is not something for the dark ages. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. It's alleged that more believers have been murdered, not just imprisoned or tortured, but murdered for their faith in the 20th century than all other centuries before combined. And of course, that is not the only or even necessarily the most dangerous enemy of the church. When Paul left the young Ephesians in the hands of their elders, this baby church, in Acts 20, he doesn't warn them about Nero. He doesn't warn them about religious persecution and discrimination that's coming, because it is gonna come. He warns them about wolves in their midst. He warns them about wolves in sheep's clothing who he says would rise up among them and devour the flock. And you know, I think in a church like ours and many churches like ours, churches that are in kind of our strata in terms of their confession of scripture, I I don't think it's that kind of wolves in sheep's clothing is typically gonna come from someone who's gonna be like, hey, Jesus you know he was created? You know, like the Mormons believe? Or, you know, the, the Holy Spirit really isn't a third member of the Trinity. He's more of a force that even some churches, so-called churches believe. I, I mean, I, I think we, by God's grace, have a good foundation doctrinally. I think that... Um, What's, what's, what's often goes on in churches like ours is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about when he writes of the damage done to churches by those who often have the greatest zeal. They have an ideal for community in their mind. They have a perfect church in mind. And because they have an ideal in their mind and a perfect church in their mind, they really can't love the real church. 
they can't love the church as it really is. And Bonhoeffer writes this. This is one of the most famous quotes about church community and one of the most powerful ones I've ever heard. It's so insightful and subtle. He says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love their Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. Bonhoeffer is warning us against embracing not the church around us as it is, but a fantasy. Now, we're not talking about opposing false doctrine or opposing hypocritical leaders who steal and commit immorality. We're talking about something more subtly, subtle, that I think we can all relate to. Imagine a husband married to his wife or a wife married to a man. Imagine a spouse married to someone who needs him. This man's married to this woman. But he's always thinking about the ideal wife he could have married. Or the wife that she could be, if only. We've talked for months about marriage and divorce. There are reasons why God gives for marriages to, to end. There are reasons why he gives wives permission to separate from the right to separate from their husbands, okay? So please don't read more than I'm saying in this. I can't qualify everything. Our little sermons would be three days long. But we know what it's like to dream of a fantasy and neglect the reality, don't we? This man thinks about the wife he missed the wife that he didn't get, the woman that got away, or he thinks about what his wife could be if only she did these things. Meanwhile, she goes unloved and neglected. And the irony is he imagines himself noble for his standards. Oh man, if only she was like this, more godly, took care of herself better, more compassionate, and inside his heart, he thinks to himself, I'm a noble guy because my standards are really high. And meanwhile, the woman to love goes unloved. And, and we do this at times, don't we? We do it with our jobs. There are good reasons to leave jobs. Again, you don't want a three-day sermon, right? But we do this with our jobs. We do this with our spouses. We do this with our children. And we do this with our church. Paul's antidote for us is not to put our hope, not Paul's, Dietrich. Dietrich's antidote for us to this is, is to not put our hope in our vision or our ideal, 
but to put our hope in God's promise to build his church as we try to be faithful to her. Bonhoeffer's antidote for us is not to put our hope in our vision or our ideal, but in God's promise to build his church as we seek to be faithful, humbly faithful, as we seek to get busy, loving, forbearing, forgiving, serving, and do that really hard work of growing up, maturing, committing, and staying with a people that need love, who are imperfect like you. Bonhoeffer's antidote is this. He says, it is not we who build the church. Christ builds the church. We must confess. He means we must agree with the truth and proclaim it. It's an older idea of confession than we're used to, but we should also be confessing our sins, right? We can use it both ways. But he says, we must confess, he builds. We must proclaim, he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be that the times by which human standards see are those times of collapse. But for him, they're times of great construction. I'll say that again because I think I messed it up. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be that the times which by human standards are the times of collapse are for him the great times of construction. It may be that the times which from a human point of view are great times for the church are times when it's pulled down by God. It is a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, you preach, you bear witness to me, you pray, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your providence. Do what is given to you and do it well and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. That is hard enough. If you're really going to be in a church, if you're really going to be committed to one another, you are going to get beat up and to forgive and keep forgiving and to hang in there and keep hanging in there. That is work enough. But who do we look like when we do that? When we stay patiently forbearing, forgiving with imperfect sinners, who do we look like? Does that sound like someone? So let's not be the church that Bonhoeffer decries, the church that cannot truly love one another because they're always wishing that the other was someone better. Let's not be the church that cannot truly love one another because they're always wishing that the other was something better. How much better and beautiful and more pleasing and like the Savior who laid down his life for wicked and sinful and spiritually ugly people to actually love the reality in front of us instead of daydreaming of idols while we neglect the reality in front of us and give ourselves pats on the back for higher spiritual standards. God help us from that, from marriages like that, from parenting like that, from being workers and employees like that. Listen, on this side of the second coming, 
the church will always be a bride who walks down the aisle with a limp and a black eye. On this side of the second coming, the church will always be a bride who walks down the aisle towards her husband with a limp and a black eye. But that's on purpose. The Lord has a great purpose in our weaknesses and in our brokenness. This is what Paul says right after the passage we just read where he said that God gives the light of the glory of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, and shines into our heart and says, let there be light. Those people in whom he does the greatest miracle possible, those people who have received the greatest privilege possible, in the very next breath, this is what he says about those people, including himself. He says, we have this treasure. We have this treasure, this this un." This priceless treasure, he says, this revelation that he gave Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, this salvation. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The most mundane, weak, fragile, breakable things. Why? to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I mean, I really relate to that. Being a pastor here for for the last 10 years, I'm afflicted in every way. I've been afflicted by my church and I've been afflicted by my sin. I've just been afflicted in every way. By myself, I've been afflicted, as well as by my brothers and sisters. But I cannot believe that I'm still here. (laughs) I'm just being honest with you. I cannot believe that I'm still doing this at this place. I can't believe it. There's only one reason. And I've gone back to it like 78 times in the last 12 hours. (laughs) Because I got afflicted again in the last 12 hours. There's only one reason why I'm still here. It's because of God's power. And I can say that because I know what it's like to be a stupid, fumbling, struggling, sinful jar of clay who's still somehow in the game beyond my deserving it and beyond my capacity. He says we're afflicted in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed. Oh God, what do we do? What do we do? But not driven to despair. Oh, Mike Steele pulled me back from the brink. (laughs) He does. And sometimes he kind of gives me a nudge towards the brink, but most of the time he's pulling me back towards the brink. I do most of the pushing Mike towards the brink. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, the suffering, the beatdowns. Why? So the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies so that our survival and even our progress, people around us and our own selves would say, oh, not I, but the grace of God. I could never do this. He's at work. He says, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You want to be a calm, have a calm, sweet, peaceful, comfortable, stable life of tranquility on this earth? Do not be a Christian. (laughs) But do you want to see Jesus' power coming through all of your, can I just say this, all of your suckiness? (laughs) 
I mean, I just feel so detestable about the way I am sometimes. I just want to use that word. Like, do you want to see God's faithfulness through all of your inability to be faithful like you know you should? Do you want to see his strength through all of your, your foibles and your incompetencies and say, gosh, oh Lord, you've saved me again. You've preserved me again. Be a Christian then. When the trials and tribulations of a person or of a church are being used by God to display his power and his faithfulness and his life, it's because your strength, my strength, the church's strength, the church's wisdom, the church's stamina, the church's charisma are not being elevated. They're being shown in their weakness. And God is preserving and sustaining in ways that are miraculous. And then a church becomes what it was meant to be. A container of his power, giving him glory. And the people around it, they say about him, God must be in this place. Because this isn't humanly possible. The church becomes what it was meant to be. A vehicle for beholding what only God's power could sustain. The limping bride with the black eye walking toward her husband redeemer is the most powerful and the most life-giving institution in the universe. It is. Jesus says this humble, broken, fragile jar of clay will assail the very gates of hell and hell will have no power to prevail. No chance, no contest. And she will do it not by her might, but by her spirit. Not by her strength, but despite her weakness. Christ will sustain her again and again. And all the assaults within her and without will only prove that only Christ could sustain and preserve her. She will be and is the pillar of truth. This church is the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells with the humble. This church and the church universal is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The church will do what God has assigned her to do, which is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And through that proclamation, one to another, God will preserve the saved. As you proclaim Jesus one to another, as you proclaim Christ, his life, his truth, his power, his hope, his commandments, his faithfulness, you will save each other. Not ultimately, but instrumentally, meaning you won't be the ones who, all, who do the saving, but God will do the saving through you. He'll do the preserving through you. He'll keep people from walking away from Jesus through you as you proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And as you do that in the street and in the workplace, in the neighborhood and in the family meeting and in the the dinner table, he will do that to those who don't have him still. Through your proclamation to the lost, he will save those headed to eternal damnation. That's what the church does. Saves the, preserves the saves, preserves, the church preserves the saved. And it seeks and saves the lost because that's what Jesus does. He preserves his people and he seeks more to save them. 
And hell will not be able to stop the limping bride as she makes her humble assault against death and sin and hell. So this morning, let's rejoice in what God has done in our church in her weaknesses. He has sustained us through much trial over 15 years. This morning, for the first time in a long time, we've embraced a group of brothers and sisters who by God's grace are willing to say, this is my local family of Christ and we don't have fog machines. (laughs) And we don't have a coffee ministry right now. And it feels like there's not a lot of other great reasons for you guys to be here except for Jesus Christ, to be honest. But hallelujah. Hallelujah. At least we know why you're here, (laughs) hopefully. So we, we, we wanna rejoice in this, that you've come to say, I wanna love this church and be loved by this church for Jesus' sake. I'm so grateful. I need brothers and sisters. I need a DR partner. I need you and you need me. I don't mean pastor to member. I mean member to member. We need each other. It's such a gift to see this. We have already been blessed by the fruit that so many of you have already brought. And we trust that God has even used this humble church to bless you. Or else I don't know why you would be here, Kate. (laughs) It's such a gift to see this. But how much better a gift, how much better a gift To see Jesus together. To see him together, but to see him and watch him work as we seek to be faithful. 